Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Continuing drama on Capitol Hill as the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, appeases his caucus by separating Israel's aid from uh, President Biden's $106 billion aid request for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, approving $14.3 billion in security assistance for Jerusalem, but paying for it through cuts uh, to the Internal Revenue Service. Pressure is mounting on Israel to pause strikes on Gaza that have taken a grim toll on civilians caught between Israeli forces and the Hamas terrorists that perpetrated the brutal October 7 attacks uh, on Israel. This as Israel surrounds Gaza City and fears of a full-blown regional crisis remain high. Uh, U.S. reconnaissance aircraft and troops are helping Israeli forces find more than 240 hostages being held in Gaza. The crisis is also fracturing U.S. politics, with help from Russia, China, and others. Ukrainian leaders say that absent a dramatic technological breakthrough, the country's drive to liberate territory occupied by Russia will end in stalemate and caution against unrealistic expectations regarding their counteroffensive that's managed to retake 17 kilometers of occupied territory in the south of the country. And despite the conflict in Europe and the Middle East, the Biden administration is dispatching Secretary of State Antony Blinken to Asia as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen unveils a new Indo-Pacific economic engagement initiative. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more is our roundtable, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody in interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. It wouldn't be uh, Friday unless we were all convening. And thanks again for everybody's flexibility, as always, to make this uh, show uh, possible, given that you're all busy and, and, and in different places at different times. Uh, Dov, thank you. I think you're joining us uh, from your car. Uh, Michael, start us off. Uh, the first week on the job for Speaker Johnson. And uh, as we discussed last week, uh, and as he had promised, he is splitting uh, Israel aid uh, from the urgently needed uh, Ukraine uh, funding uh, the president has asked for. Democrats voted against the $14.3 billion Israel aid uh, package, in part because the money came from IRS cuts, and more particularly because they want the president's funding package to go uh, through. The proposal obviously is dead on arrival in the, in the Senate, and the president has already said that he's going to veto it. Why is this either a good idea or a bad idea to do it the way that the speaker is, is is doing it. And what's next for both Israel and Ukraine aid at a time when both of the countries need aid from the United States and actually need it quite desperately, to be honest? Well, look, I think it's a bad idea. And that's not the only bad idea that's being floated this week. And we'll get to some of those in a minute. So, you know, like, as, as you mentioned, like Mike Johnson did separate the Israel aid, but that was really no surprise. Uh, the surprise was uh, the offset. First, We've never had an offset for emergency spending in the past. And second, the offset he picked really wasn't an offset at all. I mean, uh, first, you know, as you mentioned, cutting an equal amount from the Internal Revenue Service, which was uh, included in the Democrats' um, Inflation Reduction Act, actually would increase budget deficits, not reduce them. Uh, and the you know, nonpartisan CBO released a report earlier this week uh, saying it's not an offset. 
and it would actually result in more than $26 billion in lost revenue uh, for the federal government over that same period. And I will say that I did you know, talk and text with several House Republicans who privately thought this idea was really ludicrous, right? But they could not say right. so publicly, although the Democrats could and, and did. Uh, and they really expressed their real fury over this plan, and, and justifiably so. I mean, for example, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's a strong supporter of Israel, very senior on appropriations, uh, said that you know the new speaker is playing pol- political games with Israeli emergency funding, and she's right. Uh, Josh Gottheimer on the Intelligence Committee you know, said that the extreme right plays politics with the assistance to Israel and Ukraine during times of crisis. It will only empower America's enemies, and, and he's right. And then you had the leading Democrats on both armed services, uh, intelligence and foreign affairs, all issue statement opposing the bill. And I think one of the best statements actually came from Congressman Richie Torres, uh, who's a Democrat, represents the Bronx, uh, who's on, on the China committee. Uh, and he said, you know, look, this is for the first time in history, the speaker uh, has taken a position that he will not support Israel unless there are conditions. And he says it's a very dangerous decision to pursue division over unity and, and politics over principle. And I think his, his, his best point was the Islamic Republic of Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas, want nothing more than for the House to be dysfunctional, divided and distracted. And this will contribute to the further erosion of U.S.-Israeli deterrence against our common enemies. And he's really spot on there because, you know, based on my experience working in the Middle East, I am sure that today the, the social media of Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Houthis are all lighting up to show that, hey, look, support for Israel is slipping in the United States, right? Because this bill could have passed with over 400 votes, but instead it barely passed 226 to 196. Only 12 Democrats supported that. And people don't understand our political system on the outside are going to make it look like Israel's uh, support is weakening. Um, Now, at the same time, this is continuing to cause divisions within uh, Democratic ranks, you know, regardless of what the Republicans do. Uh, Pramila Jaipal, who we've talked about previously on the show, who leads the Progressive Caucus, continues to prove that she should not be in Democratic leadership because uh, she started comparing uh, publicly uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, to Israel's actions in, in Gaza. Uh, the administration came back very strongly against her, saying that Israel is not deliberately trying to kill civilians. Uh, and I, I had dinner last night with a very senior Democrat on one of the uh, our, um, um, national security committees who also reminded me that only you know 3% of the buildings in Gaza have been hit and not even destroyed, have been hit. And that you know, the media is really trying to make it look like uh, the, all of Gaza is being turned to rubble, but that's not stopping members who have access, access to this information, you know, putting forth a narrative and causing dissension in the ranks. I mean, in fact, two members of Congress, Congressman Gottheimer and Andre Carson, you know, threatened to come to blows over this uh, earlier this week. So it's not a pretty picture with inside the Democratic caucus either. Now, you asked about Ukraine as well. Well, because because the message that's being sent is worrying not just from the standpoint of conditional support for an ally like Israel, uh, who you know did suffer a brutal and horrific uh, terror uh, attack. I mean, right? I mean, I think part of the problem, and we're going to discuss this with with Dove in a minute, is Gaza is uh, the world's most densely populated area. So even though it is three percent of the buildings, it does have a ca- cascading effect on folks. But the signal also being sent in the slowness of aid to another ally that's literally also fighting for its life uh, in the form of Ukraine as winter sets in and the Russians are going to be striking its energy infrastructure. Kind of give us a sense on what's next also on the Ukrainian aid side of the package. Sure. And, and you know, last week I did say I felt that the new speaker would um, allow Ukraine aid to get to the floor uh, for a vote. I mean, he whether he supports it or not, as long as it gets to the floor for a vote, it is going to pass. And we've seen since then some positive indications that he... Um, 
has conceded that the House will pass Ukraine funding at, at some point. Now, the problem is we're really running out of time here, and we don't have time for these games. The games are playing right now with the, the bill with Israel and the same that we do with Ukraine, and we'll get to the CR as well that they're playing games with in a second. Um, but it, it, it does look like um, you know the Senate's going to need to jam the House on Ukraine funding. But in order for it to pass, I think there's going to have to be uh, not just border security funding, but some border security policy attached to this as well. Uh, and, and that's going to be really the rub here, because I've talked to some Democrats about this who think there could be some wiggle room on border policy. The White House right now is saying no. They do not want to negotiate on any border policy with the Republicans. And if that's going to be the case, that is going to hold up uh, Ukraine aid. But I do believe at some point that this will find its way to the floor and it will get passed. It's just going to be long, painful uh, and, and ugly. Uh, last I checked, uh, and, and as we have discussed, it's November 16 or 17 uh, when uh, the CR uh, expires. What are we seeing in the House and the Senate uh, on what is going to be the future of government appropriations? Uh, yes, we've got 15 days left. Uh, so November 17, when uh, uh, midnight, when the CR expires. And you Talking introduction about bad ideas. So another bad idea uh, was floated earlier this week. Uh, for some inexplicable reason, uh, the speaker floated the idea of a CR that would be uh, laddered, where different agencies uh, and departments would have different uh, expiration dates uh, for their funding. And that would create multiple cascading shutdown scenarios over a period of weeks and months which would be you know, completely unworkable. And even if it was able to pass the House, this obviously would dead an arrival in the Senate. And you know, with 15 days left, we just don't have a lot of time uh, to, to, work, to work this out. I, I, I had lunch with some of the Appropriations Committee staff earlier this week, asked them about uh, where we are on the CR, and they said no one is talking to them about the CR. Uh, and you know, the only positive thing I've seen come out so far is that the speaker had released a memo um, right before becoming speaker, uh, floating two different dates for CR. One was January 15th, one was April 15th. Uh, he has gone with the January 15th date, uh, which I think is a much better date. And, and again, uh, let's see what the Senate wants to go with either. But at least we're talking a shorter term CR, which hopefully uh, will give them time to work out the appropriations bills uh, in, in time. But uh, that also has hit a roadblock. So the House now uh, you know, had passed another appropriations bill last week. Uh, this week, earlier this week, they passed the Legislative Branch Appropriations Bill. They were scheduled to pass two more uh, this week, uh, both Interior and Transportation. However, Interior now is going to pass, but won't pass until tomorrow. But they had to pull consideration of the Transportation Appropriations Bill because uh, New, York New York Republicans are opposing it because of cuts in uh, Amtrak and other rail funding. Because in order to meet the numbers that they're trying to meet, uh, they're really having trouble finding out where these cuts are going to come from, and they're going to be uh, painful and make these bills much harder to pass. And now we're left with only two weeks left, and we've passed seven appropriations bills, so we have five more to pass in a two-week period, and that's really going to be a tall order. We also saw the Senate now finally pass uh, three of their appropriations bills that we've been waiting for a while, passed 82 to 15. We saw agriculture, military construction, and their transportation appropriations bill pass, but there's no schedule uh, to pass the others. And uh, time is running out. Uh, I, I, I just wanted to say that uh, only Congress uh, and and particularly, sadly, um, uh, one, one side of the aisle in particular when it comes to the issue of, of shutdowns uh, can make something really bad even worse. Uh, and, and that cascading shutdown idea is, is just just have a regular shutdown that it's, it, you know, unless unless you're trying to actually magnify the 
uh, impact of the bad. Um, days after uh, the uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Eric Smith, uh, suffered an apparent cardiac arrest uh, during a run uh, near his historic, uh, historic home at the barracks, uh, Republican lawmakers directed their fury at Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who's been holding up military promotions for nine months now, uh, protesting um, the administration's uh, abortion uh, policies uh, for members to transport members from states where they're prohibited from having or restrained from having abortions uh, elsewhere uh, for, uh, for that. Um, with help from uh, Democrats, Lisa Franchetti uh, was confirmed as the chief of naval operations after a long wait, and David Alvin uh, was uh, confirmed as the uh, next chief of staff of the United States Air Force, and Secretary Frank Kendall swore him in uh, at the uh, football field at uh, the Air Force Academy where he was uh, originally commissioned, so that, you know, a, a nice um, uh, symbolism there. Would this have happened without General Smith's uh, apparent heart attack? Uh, and, you know, and combined with the situation in Ukraine and combined with uh, the, what Israel's going through and what's next for the other 350 folks who are waiting because, you know, this was were individual votes on a handful of folks. It, it, where does everybody else stand in the in 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 the course of trying to get this through? Because we don't have folks in CENTCOM. I mean, thankfully, we just confirmed Jack Lewis, ambassador to Israel. We didn't have an ambassador to Israel, which was uh, on hold, right? I mean, where where are we going here with breaking through this logjam? Well, it looks like this is starting to, to come to a head. I mean, as you know, I mean, frustration uh, with what Tupperville's been doing among the, the GOP, you know, has really been. Uh, simmering uh, for a long time now, right? But now, you know, with the new war in the Middle East, uh, Russia's ongoing uh, conflict in Ukraine, uh, escalating tensions uh, in the Indo-PACOM area. And now we have the FBI director warning uh, lawmakers that there are new threats to the U.S. following Hamas attack. Now it's all uh, boiling over. And earlier this week, a group of Senate Republicans, you know, took to the floor, uh, I think it was Wednesday night, and asked for unanimous consent to confirm dozens uh, of some of the 350 nominations that are languishing uh, in the Senate. And one by one, they read, read the service members' names, their bios, praise, you know, their acumen. And these are Republicans. And one by one, Tupperville objected to each one. Um, and, uh, you know, it got really ugly. Uh, Senator uh, Sullivan from Alaska, who's on the Armed Services Committee, accused uh, Tupperville of uh, conducting a national security suicide mission. Uh, you know, he said America needs to have our most capable leaders in the field as soon as possible. Uh, and he accused Tupperville of endangering the nation. Lindsey Graham chimed in, right. launching into a tirade about how Tupperville is setting a new precedent, holding service member advancements hostage over policy disagreements and uh, complaining about the effect it's going to have on recruiting and retention. Um, uh, and now we have, uh, you know, Senator Schumer, you know, backing a proposal that would temporarily change rules uh, of the Senate to allow uh, most military promotions to be confirmed on block, uh, like a, right. in a single vote, in one package. And the idea has been proposed by Senator Reid uh, and Senator Cinema, Cinema, but it would require 60 votes. So it means it would be nine Republicans. And I think that's really got a chance. And Tupperville sees it has a chance. And he's taking you know, a, a real alarming position because now he's taking a page out of Jim Jordan's playbook and threatening uh, the other uh, Senate Republicans and saying that uh, he's alerting the anti-abortion groups and asking them to primary any GOP uh, senator that backs this proposal to temporarily suspend the rules to get these nominations through. And you know, his staff is actually releasing statements referring to these uh, Republicans as mushy middle Republicans, um, you know, nine squishes, 
Uh, and it is, it is really uh, starting to infect the, the Senate with some of the problems that the House has been having. But I, right. I really see this coming to a head, and I wouldn't be surprised if Schumer got support for this temporary rule change. I just want to quickly uh, go around the horn uh, and uh, dub start with you, Jim, and then and then Patrick. You know, what what message does this send all of our allies and partners uh, worldwide? We have uh, two nations uh, that are in uh, a dire fight. Uh, you know, one is uh, fighting for its both are fighting for their existence. But one uh, was subject to, you know, a nation state attack that's that's literally trying to, um, you know, uh, destroy uh, Ukraine as a functioning state. And another, a terrorist group that has vowed to destroy the state of Israel uh, and exacted uh, the the greatest uh, casualty toll, uh, certainly among civilians uh, in the in the country's history. And here, the United States is sort of dithering around with aid that actually should be automatic in a moment of crisis, right? And and the message it sends everybody and plays into the narrative the Russians and the Chinese have been propagating uh, for a long time. Dove, uh, start us off with that. You know, Jim, want to get your sense, and then and then Patrick, yours. Look, I, I speak to Europeans, I speak to Asians, I speak to Middle Easterners. All this is doing is confirming what they have believed for the past, I'd say, roughly, really since the Trump administration, which is we've lost our heads. And the most frequent question I get, and I suspect Jim and Patrick the same, what is going on with your country? So every incident, like the things that we just heard from Mike, reinforces that impression. And it also, of course, reinforces the Chinese, Russian, Iranian, Venezuelan, North Korean argument that we can go ahead and do what we want because the Americans have no idea where they're at. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem. It's not that this is a single incident or a single week or a single month that this has been going on. This is an impression Biden was able to dispel it for a while, but he's lost control. He doesn't have the Congress in his, the palm of his hand. And so all it's doing is getting everybody to revert back to their opinion that they held when Trump was president, namely that the United States could no longer be relied upon. And a, and a concern that's growing, right, that he could actually win because none of these legal actions against him appear to be uh, undermining his uh, support base uh, at, at all. Uh, no, you know, nobody, nobody, challenge. you know, the foreigners don't pay attention to all these court cases. They are terrified that he's coming back. And again, all it's going to confirm in their minds is right. the trend in the United States is toward isolationism. If even that, because we simply don't have a coherent policy in any respect. Uh, and it's not just foreigners who are uh, uh, worried. I, I met with a Republican friend yesterday who is who's uh, worried about it. Uh, Jim, uh, give us uh, your sense on this, because, you know, if I'm Vladimir Putin, I just had a couple of really good weeks. Well, absolutely right. Uh, or if you're in North Korea or if you're in Iran. But I, I want to add to what uh, Dove said. I agree with Dove completely. And also in Europe, you know, they're not just uh, they're not asking the question anymore where your country is going. They kind of know they're, they're, they're seeing so much evidence now that it's impacting their decisions about future aid and support coming from them. Because remember, they're sitting there and they're going, well, look, if the U.S. is beginning just to pull out or to dissolve, uh, and in terms of assistance to Ukraine from the United States or other places, they're not going to be in the game. Then how about us, Europeans? Should we fill that gap? Can we fill that gap? 
um, should we begin to hedge a little bit and maybe we pull back if the U.S. is pulling back? Because the U.S. leads. And when the U.S. looks like it's beginning to step back, uh, um, that that impacts what the Europeans then want to do, because they'll step back as well. They're not going to throw themselves on the grenade if the U.S. isn't going to be playing anymore. So that's something right. we have to worry about, too, is they could be making some pretty fundamental decisions based on what they're hearing and seeing coming out of Washington politics. Uh, Patrick, uh, how are the Chinese capitalizing on this? What is some of the messaging we're seeing? Um, because there is an enormous amount of coordination, uh, as we've seen in the weeks after October 7th, uh, certainly, among uh, the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, as, as well as indeed the Iranians. Well, the Chinese are prepping the battlefield of discourse warfare. So not only have they been long on the tack that America's in terminal decline, but if there's going to be a second Trump administration, for instance, elected next year, that would be just massive regional confirmation bias that America is both dithering, retrenching and messing up. Uh, and so, you know, it's playing into all of that. On the other side, um, you know, talking to Chinese economists this past week about how they've never been more despondent about the situation in China, uh, the whole Michael right. Beckley argument about you know peak China really being a problem, um, they're trying to push back, and this gives them a free ride on that to some extent. They should be they should be on their heels because of what's really happening in China. Instead, we're giving them basically a a freebie. Uh, it is uh, ab absolutely uh, heartbreaking, right at a time when uh, pressure uh, should be mounting. And indeed, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, obviously, jobs numbers out, U.S. economy cooling, and some questions about whether or not further interest rate hikes are uh, going to be uh, happening, right, as the Fed tries to not pitch us into a recession. Uh, before we uh, go on with the show, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval uh, coverage. Um, Dove, I want to uh, come to you, obviously. I mean, the big story uh, that has crowded out almost all other stories uh, is uh, Israel's uh, increasing strikes uh, on uh, Gaza. Uh, uh, same refugee camp uh, in Jabalia was hit twice uh, in pursuit of Hamas leaders, and Israel claims to have killed them. Uh, but the carnage also has been staggering. Um, the Israeli casualties appear to be mounting as well in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, so much so indeed that some uh, senior leaders in the IDF, uh, based on some Israeli reporting, are, are questioning the overall strategy, which we've been doing on this program what happens next? You know, we're willing to take casualties uh, to actually achieve a realistic mission. What is the realistic mission? Because I think folks look at uh, just simply the eradication of Hamas is going to be more complicated and take more time than just shooting a bunch of uh, very, very bad actors. International criticism is growing uh, of Israel um, and, and some of the casualty rates. Uh, and indeed, our allies are calling on Washington to pressure Israel to dial it back. Antony Blinken is, is now in Israel. Hassan Nasrallah, by the way, the Hezbollah leader, is making an important speech as we uh, tape this program. And hopefully we'll know more, uh, you know, because every, all eyes are on what's going to be next. How does Israel root out Hamas and not end up with a death toll that merely creates more terrorists uh, in the future? Right. I mean, what does this need to look like? How much time can Washington buy? Antony Blinken is causing for hum calling for humanitarian pauses. Israelis are saying that ceasefire would be capitulation. There's certainly a way of looking at it that way because Hamas does not have to be operating under hospitals and refugee camps. It's doing so because it hopes to use Gazans as human shields. 
What are the next steps in this and how this plays out as Israel continues to drive forward its campaign? It's got Gaza City encircled in order to be able to get in there literally house to house, tunnel to tunnel to root these guys out. Look, there are three or four different, uh, I would say, factors in all of this. One is Netanyahu. He doesn't care about anything other than staying prime minister. You ever heard of a leader who talked about a long war? Even Churchill didn't. He talked about blood, sweat, toil and tears. He, but Netanyahu needs a long war in order because he thinks that way he can stay in power. So that's one factor. The second factor is the Israelis historically uh, have always been stopped in whatever they were doing because of international opinion. They knew this was going to happen. And it seems that to some extent they've decided, okay, we'll live with that. We cannot give up now. We cannot stop. So that's a second factor. A third factor is this whole idea of a humanitarian pause. And we know that Dick Durbin now has talked about it, first senator to do so. The idea would be getting the hostages out. Now, the Israelis have said that's their priority. So if indeed they think they can get the hostages out, the question then becomes, what does Netanyahu do? Because he certainly, I think, frankly, doesn't care all that much about the hostages. He didn't never visited their families for a long time. But right. I think the word that hostages could come out will get the Israeli public pushing very hard for a pause. That could happen. Then the next question is, what happens when the hostages are out? Does the fighting right. resume? Much harder. And then the fourth question is, OK, leaving all of that aside, what happens to Gaza once the shooting really stops? And people are starting to talk about different ideas for that. Um, Blinken hinted at some kind of international force, something that I actually wrote about as well. Um, right. But the Israelis have not said a word about this. Nothing. And so you've got these four different factors, some of which contradict each other. And I think it's we'll see what Blinken accomplishes. My guess is Netanyahu will say all the right things and do whatever he damn wants to do. Pardon my French. Um, and then the pressure will increase. And the real pressure, the ultimate pressure that we can put on Netanyahu is simply to tell him we're going to stop vetoing in the Security Council. That is the one thing that will terrify him. And um, we haven't we haven't said it yet. And maybe Tony will tell him that because that might get him to think very differently about how he pursues this war. Um, and and I've heard from Israeli friends of mine sort of this this um, uh, incredibly elevated stress level of not only going to all the funerals of those who'd been killed and you know tending to all of the many thousands who were wounded, but this sort of sense. That unfortunately, the hostage. I mean, there was one uh, Israeli uh, soldier who uh, was rescued by Israeli forces, but a broader fear that actually the uh, hostages uh, are are going to meet an unfortunate fate. And we've had Hamas, you know, fanning those flames, you know, saying like, "Hey, you know, Israel, the more you bomb uh, Gaza, the more of your own people you're going to end up killing in this uh, process." Uh, even if the U.S. Uh, is trying to help uh, Israel identify, you know, have proof of life and, and what have you. And Israelis are also afraid for uh, their sons, daughters, husbands, brothers, sisters uh, who are serving in the IDF. Everybody is willing to take those casualties if there's sort of a meaningful outcome. But again, to your point, 
kind of a sense that that, that meaningful outcome would be uh, problematic. Let me just quickly take one, you, uh, one other point. One other point about all of this. There are reports that the Wagner Group, or which is now part of the Russian military, is going to be sending people, uh, I believe, to support Hezbollah. Right. And that really complicates matters as well. Uh, and so the Nasrallah speech, whenever it's whenever we get the, the real words as to what he actually said, becomes really crucial because it's going to be very hard for the Israelis to fight a two front war. And we've got those two carriers in the Eastern Med. But will the aircraft sit on the deck or will they get involved? And there's a huge sentiment in, in the United States that we really don't want to get involved here, which, of course, brings us back to the aid that Michael talked about. It ain't forthcoming yet. Um, let me uh, just uh, briefly, because I do have to go to uh, Jim and, and to Patrick, uh, but I just wanted to ask you uh, one other question. Um, uh, uh, settler attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank have dramatically accelerated uh, in the course of this uh, crisis, sending tensions there soaring. Uh, we're waiting on the Nasrallah speech. Uh, Iranians might find it very hard after many decades of fanning these flames, creating these proxies to, you know, el eliminate the state of Israel. There are some of their own supporters who are saying, well, what have we built these capabilities for? This is the moment. Let's go. You know, Houthis are firing uh, missiles uh, and an Israeli F-35 shot down a cruise missile that had been fired from Yemen. Uh, the Hetz uh, or the Arrow system shot down a ballistic missile uh, from there. What are, what are, what are, how do you rank the prospects of this actually not cartwheeling further out of control? Because Palestinians on the West Bank were willing to go with something calmer, but their frustration has mounted in the wake of the Israeli response in Hamas uh, to Hamas uh, or the attacks on Gaza, but also the fact that settler incidents against them with the army as a bystander are becoming even more worrisome, right? I can't tell you how many times I visited Israel and met with the senior military leadership and met with PA officials and met with uh, those in charge of West Bank security who would laud the cooperation with Palestinians. And oftentimes army guys telling me, hey, look, we, we've got to be the fair player in this. You know, and, and now in the eyes of some in the West Bank, that's no longer the case. How do you game where this is going? Because these are two fronts that are going to be very, very hard to control, you know, you might be able to de deter in the north. But I mean, if you have a full blown incident in the West Bank with 2.3 million Palestinians there, that's going to become a crap show. Now, I, I totally agree with you. I'm very worried for another reason. People don't realize that in the last, oh, I'd say 15 to 20 years, more and more uh, religious Zionists, the kind of people who might support a guy like Smotrich, have joined the military. You see that when you go to the Kiryak headquarters, uh, far more people wearing uh, yarmulkes and with their ritual fringes seat out in the open than you saw 20 years ago. Most of those folks are coming from the West Bank, which means that you've got settlers who happen to be soldiers who are then watching what's going on in the West Bank and standing aside. I think this is a major problem. It's a major problem for the uh military, which is the, the senior leadership, rather, which is still rather secular or at least balanced on these issues. And yes, it's a huge worry. And unless they rein in these uh, soldiers or pull them out of the West Bank entirely, there's going to be a big problem. They've got to the military has to be seen by the Palestinians 
as protecting them as well as protecting the settlers. That's not how it's perceived right now. And that is indeed a huge problem, which complicates the Israeli problem of having to deal with Hezbollah and crazy Houthis firing missiles that they have no idea where they'll actually go. And then ultimately the Iranians. The Iranians are going to stay out of it. Very simple reason. They don't know if the Israelis will go crazy enough to fire a nuke at them. So they're not going to they're but they never get directly involved. I mean, they're they're not shooting at our people. It's their militias that are shooting at our people. That's how the Iranians play this game. And the Israelis have to be exceedingly careful about the West Bank, as you say, because if that thing blows up, then I don't know where all of this goes. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, let me take you to uh, another uh, hotbed issue, which is obviously Ukraine and some extraordinary admissions, both by President Zelensky saying everybody's got to be realistic about what this uh, counteroffensive can uh, accomplish. Ukraine taking incredible casualties around Avdivka, but also in the south to make these incremental gains. Um, the Zaluzhny, uh, the Ukrainian chief of staff, has said short of massive technological breakthroughs, uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to avoid a stalemate. Uh, his point was, you know, both of them ex- expressed enormous gratitude toward aid, but said this has moved too slowly. We're, when we were asking for F-16s, we could use F-16s because the Russian air and missile defenses weren't as good. Now the Russian air and missile defenses are good. We wanted certain other capabilities before the Russian precision UAV capabilities were strong. Now they're strong. Uh, and then anything that can be seen on the battlefield can be struck. What, what does this tell us about what it is as an international community we have to do to help Ukraine? Because ultimately, the single biggest message that Putin was waiting for is, I can wait you guys out. I am at a war economy. I am building up my capabilities. And sure as uh, the sun will rise tomorrow, barring something happening in space we don't know about yet, uh, you know, they are going to start bombarding Ukraine's uh, energy uh, and heating networks in order to plunge Ukrainians uh, into darkness and cold over the winter, right? For a population that is exhausted, it's a much smaller country fighting a bigger country. Where are we right now? Where are we going? And what are the things that have to happen in the next couple of weeks? Because I think that people don't understand how dire the situation in Ukraine is, as the focus really has gone uh, to uh, uh, Israel's war on Hamas. Uh, Well, it really has. I mean, those questions you're asking, uh, they were pertinent and a whole different background three months ago. Now, after what Dove has said and Michael have said about the U.S. politics, but particularly what's happening in Gaza and where Gaza could go. What Dove just said, you know, I I just uh, for Putin, who's saying, I will wait you out. He was saying that since the very beginning of the invasion. Now, after Gaza, that has given him such a boost. It's not just waiting us out, but it's watching the accelerant, which is what's happening in Gaza, as well as in the House of Representatives, just really throw the West and the United States um, on its heels. Uh, So it's not just waiting us out that he's watching. He's just. He's just eating, he's eating it up that uh, Gaza uh, and, and all of that that's happening in the House is absolutely eating our lunch uh, here in Washington. And, and the allies are seeing that, too. So, you know, answering your question, um, I could just repeat the old bromides, you know, yes, F-16s, they should have done it earlier. Now it's going to be even harder, even harder uh, for Washington and the uh, for Washington particularly to be keeping up the assistance to Ukraine. Um, the House notwithstanding, just the amount of stuff that needs to go to Gaza as well, and the bandwidth 
that the White House and the NSC and the state and defense, uh, the bandwidth they can give to Ukraine versus Gaza is much less now. So, so frankly, as you look at the next few weeks, if not months, it is more than dire in terms of Ukraine, that Ukraine theater, unless we really ramp up here in Washington and in the West, really ramp up all of our activities to try to provide assistance and everything else that comes with Gaza and comes with uh, supporting Ukraine. If we, if we just keep it at the same uh, ops tempo as we have now, it's not going to be enough. So frankly, uh, I think instead of what can we do, I think Europe and Ukraine itself they have got to be more a part of the solution here. Um, we've always talked about what happens if the U.S. is caught up in another theater, uh, what happens to U.S. forces in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, with the idea of, the, of that contingency being China. I think Gaza, if it really goes bad, uh, could, could be an equal uh, uh, distraction at a minimum for the United States. And, the, and so Europe and Ukraine have got to start hedging right now, and that's in terms of assistance. And for Ukraine... It's redoubling its, its efforts to do indigenously uh, produce the, a lot of the munitions and things that they need. They're doing that on drones, I know. But but uh, I just, as looking into the future, it just looks dismal in terms of U.S. assistance um, uh, for a lot of different reasons. And I think the only thing that can that can help is if Europe does more. And they are doing a lot. Let me tell you, they are doing a lot. But they're going to have to do much more than they're doing now to fill gaps that could appear in the coming months. If not, um, we I, just and in about uh, thirty seconds, can uh, is Europe doing enough to build up its own capability? Because the Europeans depend on us uh, for their munitions, for their aircraft, and a lot of other uh, systems. At the end of the day, even if the Europeans wanted to help, right? If we are distracted, can they help as much as is necessary to make a difference for Ukraine at this point? Well, that's a big part of the problem right now is that they're trying to, but it's the same thing with European munitions makers saying, well, show us the contracts. And they're, right. and they're all thumbs, uh, you know, all thumbs trying to figure out, so what should the response to, to, to that be? Uh, you know, the Danes, the, the Germans, the others, how much should they put on contract? Because who knows what the future looks like? And that's part of the problem. It's recognized. I, we know they're working on it. We know there's not a good answer to it. It just means that that uh, as much as they, like you said, as much as they recognize their role in having to do more practically, what can they do quickly? I don't think it's going to be a whole lot. I think this going to ha- it can come down the road, but they've got to they've got to really accelerate the situation now and take some risks. I think they're going to have to roll the dice, and they're not going to have a perfect contract solution in terms of one five five millimeter and. And that kind of thing. I think they're going to really have to start taking risks, the governments, uh, to get stuff produced. But even so, of course, the industry's got to ramp up. They've got to build the facilities. They got to do other things. So it's going to take a while. But uh, but uh, you know th- that's going to have to be part of the solution. And we'll see how long it takes in terms of the U.S. and how slow we become. I mean, hopefully that will be a bit of a delay in that, too, to, to buy some time for Europe to be able to do more. But given our politics and given what's happening in Gaza, it's, hap- it's, it's things are moving fast and we could end up on the short end of the stick here in terms of assistance earlier than we thought we would. Uh, so I don't right. want to be doom and gloom here, but but uh, but right. you've got a point. There's there's a long lead time in Europe to really contribute in more than a marginal fashion. 
Um, uh, Patrick, uh, thanks very much uh, for your patience. Uh, one of the big concerns, let me ask you a macro picture before I go to Janet Yellen's trip and some other headlines in the region. But um, there is this concern, and you mentioned uh, Michael Beckley, right? That the more, uh, the weaker China gets, the more dangerous potentially it becomes. And if you wanted to get up to mischief, now would be a good time to get up to mischief. Even if the Chinese feel pretty confident that the KMT and the TPP might uh, sweep in in Taipei and help, uh, you know, change uh, the dynamic, right? What a difference uh, a couple of days make made uh, in the case of Ukraine from, hey, they're doing well to Avdivka, oh my God, things are going badly, uh, to uh, a couple of months. How are the Chinese playing this uh, and are they likely to take advantage uh, or not, right? Is it more like they'll keep their heads down? Because again, some some have this fear that all the cards are lining up for them to, to sort of attack Taiwan. I'm not one of those people, but I wanted to get your sense on, on that. Well, sometimes China's a predatory tiger and sometimes it's a fleeing zebra, uh, you know, and so it's, <laughs> it's going to be, in, uh, I'm, uh, that's Miles Yu, my colleague uh, at Hudson who talks about those twin sort of sentiments within the Chinese, I, I think we, you know, they're looking for opportunities. So some level of instability in multiple theaters plays into their multi-level game. What we're doing at a high level right now, and even writing the People's Daily, is that we want a degree of stability with the United States. They're about to host Prime Minister Albanese uh, and kind of have a reset with the Australians. Um, and at the same time, they're doing more aggressive operations around the South China Sea. Um, they're shouting about Taiwan at the Shangshan Forum. Um, and so they're playing this multi-level game and they're decoupling on the technology side, even bringing their intelligence uh, service, the Ministry of State Security, into this discussion that Xi Jinping's been talking about, the U.S. trying to use financial tools to disrupt uh, Chinese markets and to therefore put pressure on China. And now that their intelligence operations, we're going to be proactive in fighting back on this perceived threat. They're very paranoid about it. They're very worried about the, the peak China questions that Michael Beckley has documented, for instance, in the latest issue of international security. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, they're looking for opportunities and uh, across the board. So in Northeast Asia and in East Asia, generally, um, in the Middle East, in Europe, globally. Patrick, the administration is also trying to maintain uh, focus to show that it can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, Antony Blinken is uh, visiting uh, Israel. And as we record this, uh, was very shaken uh, by uh, additional footage uh, 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 that Israel has assembled about of the brutality of the attacks, while at the same time urging uh, Israel to be more cautious as uh, how uh, it, it prosecutes this uh, campaign. But he's also going to be going to the Asia Pacific. Uh, we've got uh, Janet Yellen, uh, who has been uh, talking about a new uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Initiative. Walk us through what the administration's both messaging is but the concrete uh, dimension of this new sort of treasury-led uh, initiative. The Biden administration uh, is looking for a degree of economic stability and uh, looking for the boundaries of the technological competition and therefore de-risking um, versus the 90% of trade that uh, Janet Yellen has talked about being within the bounds of, of the thinkable with China. Um, and so this is uh, central to the Biden administration's uh, economic and political strategy. Um, it's trying to, again, say that we can be tough and hold the line on China where we have to and confront them where we need to. 
but at the same time, we can be pragmatic and recognize our own economic interdependence. This is the same line that's coming from, again, uh, Prime Minister Albanese when he goes to Beijing on Monday. Um, the Australians being a pragmatic uh, middle power, uh, at the same time trying to be a stalwart ally. So everybody is trying to hedge their bets here. And this is where the Biden administration is essentially holding their ground. This is the record they've built. Uh, even the shuffling of personnel that they're trying to do on the Indo-Pacific team is nobody new. It's just uh, moving people around um, because they're 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 girding their loins for the election year. They're you know they're getting ready for the summit with Xi Jinping, um, and all of this is coming to a head. And I think the good news is that China, of course, needs a degree of stability. As I pointed out in the People's Daily, they're they're editorializing that we must have stability with the United States. So they want uh, at least on the surface, uh, both sides want. Uh, some trade to increase, and they want some stability in this relationship, at least for the short term, at least for the next 12 months. Uh, and uh, give us just uh, a quick sense of other uh, regional uh, news that we ought to be paying attention to. Well, let me start with O Canada. I mean, Canada had two incidents with the PLA this past week uh, around the Paracel Islands and, and while transiting the, the Taiwan Strait with the United States. Um, including a dangerous uh, shot of flares at a at a Chinese helicopter that was trying to conduct an ASW operation. It may have been a tactical move on the part of the PLA to disrupt uh, the tracking of a submarine. The Chinese, after all, are trying not just to impose a nine-dash line claim on the South China Sea, but they're also trying to build, uh, frankly, a bastion strategy in the coming years uh, in the South China Sea. Um, Prime Minister Kishida in uh, in uh, the Philippines will be the first prime minister ever to uh, uh, talk to a joint session of the Philippine Congress. That's at a time after President Marcos has said that he's going to walk away from large Belt and Road Initiative projects from China. Um, and while the Japanese are moving in radars and increasing their defense-oriented assistance to the Philippines uh, and talking about a cross-servicing agreement as well. Um, I think the Korean Peninsula, though, has to be... Uh, on your radar, because uh, for all of us, uh, because just as we slept through the gains that North Korea made on cyber uh, space during COVID, when we weren't looking so much, uh, they may actually reinitiate idea of nuclear transfer to the Middle East. This this is of the most deadly, serious work that we should be watching, and it's not clear that we're adjusting all of our counterproliferation cooperation and means to stop that from happening. I'm not saying we're seeing it yet, but this is exactly now the kind of multi-crisis need for North Korea, Russian lack of concern, Russian wanting to disrupt as well uh, anything they can do to hurt America. So we have to watch out for something that serious. In the meantime, closer to the peninsula, we've seen this uh, exposure of uh, a possible military satellite, therefore ICBM test that North Korea is likely to conduct now by the end of the month. With the help of Russian assistance, the South Korean intelligence says they're likely to succeed. Meanwhile, the Americans just failed on an ICBM launch that the South Koreans were watching. That was an important uh, uh, trip to, to, to Vandenberg because um, it completes the triad of where the South Koreans, our allies, have now been brought into sort of Kings Bay. And we had an SSBN visit to Busan in the summer. We had a bomber visit uh, to uh, an ROK Air Force Base in October. Uh, now the ICBM uh, leg of the triad. It's trying to make good on the administration's Washington declaration with the South Koreans to say, look, you don't need your own nuclear weapons. You really are more than symbolically integrating into our own nuclear umbrella. Uh, everybody, thanks very much again for joining me. Hope all of you have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Uh, thanks very much. And thanks to our audience for joining us. We really appreciate you spending time with us.
And a special thanks to Bill and all of our sponsors uh, for their generous support that makes this program uh, possible. Hope everybody has a great weekend, uh, a great day, and look forward to having you back on on Sunday uh, for the Business Roundtable. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you then.